Hello, and welcome to This Thing Called Life, a podcast dedicated to sharing stories about acts of giving, kindness, compassion, and humanity. Your host, Andy Johnson, will introduce you to powerful stories about organ, eye, and tissue donation from individuals, families, and healthcare teams whose experiences will inspire you and remind you that while life is hard, unpredictable, and imperfect, it's also beautiful. We are so happy you're here. Now, let's join the show. Welcome to this thing called life. I'm your host, Andy Johnson. I hope you are well and 2022 is treating you right thus far. And listen, if it's been rough, then I hope that you are just doing the best you can and navigating and moving through this. And just remember, tomorrow is a new day. So with that, the new year brings new beginnings. And we're going to explore the truths about organized tissue donation. There is a lot of misinformation and falsehoods about this topic. So one of my goals is to really dive in so there's a better understanding of what donation is and what it isn't and how it truly impacts others. February is Black History Month and National Heart Month. I bring this up because African-Americans are at a higher risk of heart disease and also make up the majority of people on the national wait list for kidney transplants. Why is that? Well, research suggests that African-Americans may carry a gene that makes them more salt sensitive, which increases the risk of high blood pressure and heart disease. Uh, We also have higher rates of obesity, and that is a precursor to these health issues. So this is a great time. February is a fantastic time to do your homework, research, and learn the signs of heart disease, as well as renal failure, learn about kidney health, and what you can do to be the healthiest and best version of yourself and prevent the onset of these conditions. Visit heart.org and kidney.org. Both have great information and great resources about what you can do to empower yourself to be very healthy and just do all that you can to stave off these conditions. So I am really excited to welcome my guest today. Uh, She is described as a comedian, an actress, singer, writer, producer, radio host, motivational speaker. She's a double lung transplant recipient. And most importantly, she is a Christian I want to welcome to the show, Miss E. Denise Peoples. Hello, Denise. How are you? Andy, hi. I'm doing well, doing well. Good to be here. When I read that intro of you, I was like, well, wow. What isn't E. Denise Peoples? (laughs) I mean, (sighs) a lot. Listen, I'm not an Olympic gold medalist. Okay. Okay. Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. yet. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and, and listeners also want you to know we were talking before the show and, and Denise told me that she also is part of that Peloton community, which blew me away. I mean, those, you, you're on your way to being an Olympic athlete because that that's a heck of a workout from what yes, I understand. Yes, so yes, kudos to you. I'm really, really happy to have you with us today. You have a very interesting uh, journey. Uh, Obviously, you're a double lung recipient. So 
why don't we just start there and get some get some some background about what led you to needing the transplant and we'll move there, move from there. All right. Well, I was uh, born and raised in Patterson, New Jersey, uh, the youngest by a big margin, a big gap, uh, three children. And my parents, you know, they were workaholics. They worked a lot. My mother was actually the Avon lady, actually, for real, for real. Like every Thursday I would open the garage and be like, oh my God, I can't stand another brown box with Avon on the side. (laughs) But, um, you know, I started working at a young age delivering Avon. And, you know, my preacher's daughter, the whole nine, uh, very active. Coming, Coming along at that time, my sister was in like first year of high school. My brother was just about out of high school and here I come. Uh, so wherever they went, my parents, I was right there. You know, they didn't stop moving. They thought they were done, but it was like, okay, well, this one will have to go where we go, whether it be working, cutting grass, whatever. Uh, so life was always very on the go, on the go. I went to North Carolina Central University, home of the Mighty Eagles for college. And, uh, you know, just life, just constantly going, being active, being in things, uh, being a part of organizations, just always. Um, and in 2000, uh, my mom had come up to visit from because they had relocated to North Carolina to retire. And she had come up to visit. And I lived on the second floor and I'm bringing up her bags and I'm short of breath. And I'm like, what is up? Oh, it's December. I'm in Jersey. It's cold. Of course, I might be short of breath. It's OK. Well, this lasted until like February. So I went to my primary doctor like, what is going on? So she treated me for pneumonia and nothing got better. Um, so she sent me to a pulmonologist and I got the diagnosis. I was, uh, I had idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, IPF, okay. which is at that time, but you know, life, time changes things. But at that time it was an older white male smoker's disease. I never smoked a day in my life. And as you can see, I don't fit the other criteria at all. My mother wanted a boy when she was pregnant with me, but she, yeah, I'm not an older white male, not at all. So, so we were like my family and friends, we were like, what? And then to find out that, you know, as this disease progresses, your only alternative is a double lung transplant or a lung transplant, because they didn't know if it was going to be one lung, two. They just know that this disease progresses. So I, I kind of embraced it and had to live with it. Um, and as the disease progressed, I um, would just adapt, to be totally honest, adapt. My, in 2002, living you know, in Hillside, and uh, this woman wrote a play, and she lived in Paris. Mm-hmm. And her best friend was from Texas. And this woman from Texas moved to Paris and kind of had a Josephine Baker story. She ended up staying, singing, and married a Parisian. And then the two of them, the woman, the two women became friends. So Marielle says to Joanne, hey, I want to write a play, kind of a Martin Luther King, Malcolm X story. I want Parisian actors, but I only want an American choir to sing. And Joanne said, oh, you got to go to the Gospel Music Workshop of America. That's where all the choirs go. So you had this beautiful Parisian woman sitting with all these African-Americans and she's listening to choir after choir after choir. And she picked a choir from Newark, New Jersey. 
Some of them crazy people did not want to go. How do you not want to go to Paris for a year? Be paid all expenses. Just so happens the choir director lived in the building that I lived in in Hillside. Okay. He knocks on my door. Denise, I need you to audition. I got, I got a lung disease, but I'm down. I can do it. So I call my pulmonologist. I'm like, listen, this is, I've made the audition. I can go live in Paris for a year. He said, you sure can. He was like, I mentored a woman while she was in school. And she is a pulmonologist in Paris. Wow. Wow. So I go to Paris with my own doctor. Like I get there, I see her every, what was it? Every like six weeks. Mm -hmm. So I was, you know, she would report back to him how I was doing. Of course, I had to time myself. I learned a lot about my body. I learned a lot about myself. Okay, you got a rehearsal. You can't leave with everybody. Last minute, folks, you can't go early. So when you get there, you're rested. Mm -hmm. So we get there, we start rehearsing. For about a month, we were rehearsing. And Mariel liked us so much. She wanted us actually part of the play, not just behind the scenes singing. And one of those things was singing and dancing. I was like, you've got to be joking me. Oh, wow. So I had to learn how to just, deal with it. Never missed a rehearsal, never missed a performance. Don't want to ever hear Oh Happy Day again in my life. But because we sang that thing every single show because Parisians love that song. Okay. Fast forward to being there a year, uh, dealing with the lung disease, coming home. And it was almost like we were there all of 2003. And it was like when we came home the end of 2003, things just started going down as far as, you know, the, the disease progressing. Mm-hmm. So fast forward, I ended up on oxygen 24 hours a day. i mm-hmm. um, still doing comedy, still trying to, you know, keep a normal life. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I do things like, you know, I'd walk out on stage, people were like, yo, she got an oxygen tank. Like, I can't laugh, you know? Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, if you don't laugh at my jokes, I will push this button and I'll start flying through the, through the room. And people were like, <clears throat> you know, I'm like, you can laugh decorated my cannula with rhinestones. I had to get through this. And I knew that laughter was truly good medicine. There were days, Andy, I felt like, why? Like, I have never done anything this bad to deserve this. And I always laugh. People are like, where do you get your inspiration? I said, well, I can tell you physically where I get, either on the toilet or in the shower. <laughs> I said, that's where he talks to me the most. I said, it's, I get all of these ideas while I'm so I got pads, writing pads and pens in my bathroom because I know. So it was July 15th, 2006. Already knew by sitting with the doctors, hey, your whole left lung is fibrosis. It's not expanding, it's not contracting. Mm-hmm. Bottom of your right lung is is, is that way you're going to need a double lung transplant. So just so happens that July 15th, I had promised a really good friend of mine, hey, when you get married, I'm going to emcee your your reunion, I mean, your uh, reception. Mm-hmm. So of course, it's coming up to that time. And he is like, if you don't feel like it, I understand, because he knew what was going on. And I said, absolutely not. I'm going to do it. He was like, oh, okay. You know, and his fiance was like, okay, you know, you're funny, even though you got the oxygen. So, okay, if you feel like it. That morning, I woke up feeling like 
when is this going to end? Like, mm-hmm. I can't do another minute of this. And honestly, while sitting on the throne, I heard a, a voice say, soon. And I'm like, that's me. The oxygen ain't going to my brain. Ah, you know. So I get ready that evening, that afternoon, and my manager picks me up. We go and we have an amazing time. We let we just had a great time at the reception. I performed, came home, and we, she and I are standing in my kitchen. And she looked at me. She said, you're tired, aren't you? I said, yeah. I'm so tired of living like this. Mm-hmm. And no sooner than I said it, the phone rang. And I looked at the caller ID like, why are they calling me at 10 o'clock at night? So I answered. And Marissa says, hey, Miss Peoples, uh, we need you to get to the hospital. And I'm like, she said, yeah, we got lungs. We need you to get to the hospital. I'm like, Charlie Brown's mother. I'm like, well, I, I, I just handed my manager the phone. She's getting all the particulars. I go and I'm standing in my room like, oh, my God, it's really happening. So I get all ready to get to the hospital to get me prepped and ready. Here comes my surgeon. And he says, Miss Peoples, I don't like these lungs. Mm-hmm. I said, Doc, you operated on Bill Clinton. If you don't like them, neither do I. Unhook me so I can go home. Because I knew God had to have something better for me. Mm-hmm. If it wasn't then, I knew it would happen. I just started to believe again. October 2nd, 2006, early in the morning. I'm still trying to get a little walk in, you know, even with my oxygen. And I get a phone call. We have good lungs. Come in. Get in the hospital, get prepped and ready. Take me into surgery. And the next thing I know, I wake up in ICU uh, with the absolute best gift anyone could ever give me. My nurse looked at me when I opened my eyes and she said, welcome back. Of course, I had the tube in. I couldn't talk, but. She said, welcome back. Everything went great. You're good. Just relax. And I felt my face. And she said, oh, you're looking for the cannula. She said, it's there, but you're breathing on your own. The absolute best words I had heard in years. And a voice said to me, the reason you're here is because you believe that I had something better for you. And that 19-year-old from South Carolina blessed my life. And I promised that day I wouldn't have any more more regrets. I would do, I would say, I would tell this story. And ever since then, every morning, I pray for my donor family. I think about my donor. And as God would have it, I actually work for an organization that procures organs and tissues for transplant. What? (laughs) That's interesting because I I didn't know until uh, my colleague, Audrey, had shared shared a little bit of your story with me. So you are with New Jersey Sharing Network. And that, as you said, that's an organ procurement organization or an Mm -hmm. OPO, as we prefer to ourselves. And Mm -hmm. that serves the New Jersey area. And just for our listeners who may maybe don't know, they're 57 OPOs throughout the country, and we all have our designated territories or service areas, if you will. So, but how, how did, yeah, how did you end up there? You know, while I was home recuperating, I said, who does this? Like, who does this? 
who puts this together? I know it's not just the hospital. It's got to be someone. wanted to understand how right. this all came Exactly. Through. So I Googled. Even back then, people were Googling. And New Jersey Sharing Network came up. And I said, you know what? I want to volunteer because I was working actually for the state as a um, chief of staff for a state assembly. Mm-hmm. So I was like, you know, when I go back to work, I want to volunteer with this organization. So just so happens I was in Kinko's. That's how long ago that was. <laughs> and I am peeping over this lady's shoulder because I see the logo for the New Jersey Sharing Network. And I hooked up with her, started volunteering. And after six years of volunteering, they were like, yeah, enough of this. We got a job opening. And I was like, hmm, yeah, I'll take it. (laughs) And it has been amazing. It has truly been amazing. So what what is your role at New Jersey Sharing Network? I have been, I, I have been everything from presenting to high schools Mm -hmm. actually sitting down with families to talk to them about the opportunity Mm -hmm. of their loved one who was on a ventilator, you know, was at a critical moment about the gift that they could share and the difference they could make. So right now I am a community services specialist with the sharing network. So that means I go into all communities. Um, I'm over, uh, the faith-based initiative. I work with a great colleague, Amitra Burton, to go into all types of communities to talk about um, the actual organ and tissue donation process, dispel myths and misconceptions. Uh, We work together on so many initiatives within the sharing network, which are really across the board. All of the OPOs deal with like Donate Life Month and all kinds of stuff. So we all wear many hats. But my thing, really, I think one of my niches, I'm a preacher's kid, so of course, the faith-based. And when your faith leader is passionate about something, it it trickles down. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we definitely speak with our faith leaders and those who are active in the faith community. Mm -hmm. And the Sharing Network is now, well, they've always been givers. So we figure out ways to not just go into, into those minority communities and ask. We go in to give. Uh, We have a festival that we do every year. It's called Live Healthy and Move. Mm. And we have our partners, our hospital partners, our fitness partners, our funeral home directors come in and talk about how to set up, you know, planning. Mm -hmm. Uh, So you're not blindsided because a lot of people in our communities are blindsided when, when death happens. So we got GoFundMe's and we got, you know, auntie to stay above ground for two, three, four, five weeks because we don't have the funds. So we have hospital partners. We have our funeral homes come in. We have Zumba, Reiki, all these things to help you stay healthy. So hopefully you will never need an organ transplant. But just in case you want to be a living donor, you can do that. And what, you know, kidneys. Because our communities, as you said, are in dire straits right now because of kidney disease. And all of it boils down to the lack of knowledge. I'm totally convinced. So that that, that was going to be my next question. What? So you, you believe lack of knowledge is the reason why African-Americans don't register or think about being a living kidney donor? 
correct. Lack of knowledge, those myths and misconceptions that need to be dispelled. Mm-hmm. Yes, we know Tuskegee. We know it well. Right. Better than a whole lot of folks. Right. But that was then. This is now. Right. People are dying. Now, you will accept the kidney if you need a kidney transplant. Right. But what about if you're able to bless somebody else? Yeah, that's, you know, that's just, that is, that's something that I struggle with because, you know, you want, it is about lack of knowledge, I think, just lack of understanding. And so we, in our roles as community engagement and, and what we do, it's like, how do we, how do we continue to bridge that gap and have those conversations? Because people really need to understand the need and yeah. particularly with African-Americans. And it's, you know, it's, it, it's kind of along the same lines as the, the whole COVID conversation and vaccine and and you know there's so many of us who just refuse mm-hmm. refuse to be vaccinated because of yeah. the distrust and and want to roll the dice and do something different and and we're just seeing that's not that's not working that's not working for for folks no, across the board absolutely not so I want to talk about this because this was what I found most intriguing about your story you are a double lung recipient, and you contracted COVID. Yes, and vaccinated and all. In the 30 minutes that we've been talking, I've just, what what I feel from you is just this positive attitude, this won't quit, won't stop, going to keep pushing. I just, I I can't even imagine. So I, I I want to hear what that was like. Hearing uh, that doctor say to me in that emergency room, because I was, I, I think I contracted COVID on a Saturday. <clears throat> on Monday, I got the booster shot. So I was, the two shots were done. March, I got the, the, the vaccine. Yeah. When I tell you it was an explosion in my body, when the two met, I was very, very sick. Like I, I, I couldn't, it was hard for me to stand up. It was my head. Oh, my head felt like, I don't know what the coughing. And the, it felt like I had been taken back in time to 15 years ago. So when I got to the emergency room and they, you know, swabbed me and everything. And, you know, you sit there and you wait hours. Oh, that was the worst experience. Cause I'm like, if I don't have COVID, why do you have a lung transplant patient sitting with everybody else? I don't get it. Like, get me out of here. Move me somewhere. Put me in a closet. Right. Isolate me, please. Yes, please. So the crate, when she said it, they had told me first, we do see pneumonia. And I was like, that's not good. That's lung related. Right. But when she said, you are COVID positive. Andy, the first thing I did was this. And I was like, I don't even know your name, but I promised to protect you. And now I was devastated. Mm. I knew I was in the right place. I knew, you know, I had people on the phone that were keeping me, trying to keep me calm and walk me through it. Mm -hmm. But as a lung transplant patient, when you hear that you are positive for a 
respiratory disease. I live in Newark, New Jersey. During the heart of COVID, you could ride behind any hospital in this area. And we have three, a trauma center and two others that's extremely busy. Mm-hmm. We saw tractor trailers. And they weren't there delivering paper goods. They were holding bodies. For, for her to, the doctor to say that, I, I just felt like I had failed mm-hmm. my donor. Mm-hmm. And I had tried so hard to be conscious of this disease, you know, of this pandemic, stay home. And, and it was just like, oh my God. So once I got to my floor um, and at the hospital where I go, you know, transplant patients always, especially long, have their own room. Mm-hmm. I just cried out. I moaned like, what in the world is this? How, how am I going to, you know, it was, they were on it. That's all I can say. They were on it. And one thing my doctor told me, my pulmonologist, he's never said anything about God per se. Or he looked at me, he said, thank God you had those, that vaccine. Mm. Because I was on the floor with all lung trans patients who had COVID. Mm. Mm. And it wasn't as good for others. A few of them, I know, I heard, you know, the codes and all, I know what the codes mean. Right. So thank God they got me, you know, we got through that part of COVID and pneumonia x-rays i would see them i can go right on my phone and see what the x-ray looks like i could see the pneumonia you know the whole thing so they're taking me off the drug that suppresses my immune system so it can start to fight a little bit but they don't want it to fight too much so that was that balancing act delicate now yeah right right and then when the pneumonia and the covid started to subside to this day, we don't know exactly what it was. I got hit with the most excruciating joint pain I have ever felt in my life. I started to get a little, you know, little strength because now COVID and pneumonia starting to, you know, so I'm like, okay, I can move a little bit. This particular moment, if you've been in the hospital, you know, them bird baths, they for the bird. I want to get in the shower. Like I got to feel it all over me. I need the wash. So, I need to wash up. <laughs> right, right. So I'm like, you know what? Today I'm holding on to bars, whatever I gotta do, but I'm getting in the shower. I'm feeling a little better. I have the best shower of my life, lotion up, put on the two, you know, two hospital gowns. I good the socks with the the new socks that you open with the things on the bottom. I'm good. You are fresh. I'm, oh, I'm fresh, fresh and clean, honey. Done. The sun is coming through the window. I can see the Hudson. I'm good. I'm sitting there watching TV. Still no appetite, really. So I'm just picking on whatever, you know. I say four hours in. Ow. What is... My shoulder hurts. Hmm. Over the next two days. Nothing left. Shoulder. Elbow. Wrist. Hand swells, shoulder sore. What is this? So they call rheumatology. They draw fluid off my shoulder. I wanted to, I wanted to die. That was so painful. Then my ankle. Then my left hand, the knuckles. Hmm. I can't walk. 
I can't text. I was like, okay, what is this? Mm. No, it wasn't gout. They don't know what it was. So now they're starting to run, you know, take all this blood, run these tests. But just like it came, Andy, it started to go away after about a week. Shoulder felt better. Then the elbow felt better. The hand felt better. The ankles and this hand. So they were like, Miss Peter, all the blood we took and all the tests, you can't, we don't want you to stay here until we want, because it's going to take a minute because we want to know what this is too. Mm -hmm. You can go home. So I finally came home after 21 days in the hospital. And when I left, as I'm walking out the door, I said, Lord, I just want to come home. I just want to come back home. Mm-hmm. And when I stepped over the, you know, the door threshold, uh, when I came home, I just cried like, thank you. You made it. So, yeah. So it just took time for me to get an appetite and start, you know, <clears throat> still don't know what it is. I go back. Uh, next week for the checkup and talk to rheumatology to find out what it could be. But since then, I've been doing good. Was never on oxygen. Was always on room temperature. My um, oxygen levels never went under ninety. Mm-hmm. But my body, yeah, it was it was hard. Um, and like I said to you, just getting my strength back is, you know, is like one of the biggest things right now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But other than that, you know, it was. I don't ever want to deal with that. But when I hear people say, you know, oh, I'm not getting it. I have a college friend who said it was a conspiracy theory. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, now there is a woman and two children without a husband. Mm-hmm. He passed away. Mm-hmm. I and I tell my college friends when we talk, I'm like, do you know how many times we went to college parties and drank out of whatever container was there and put it in a red cup? That's how you put it in that red cup. Right. And you have no clue what it was. Mm-hmm. Supplements you take, you don't know what's in that supplement. And it's not for you. It is for the people around you. Like, what don't you get? But So, I, what I, again, another thing I found so fascinating about your story is, so, you know, we're hearing now that many transplant centers are saying, We will not list you if you don't get vaccinated. And it's, it's, you know, it's that there's quite a bit of conversation around it. You know, unfortunately, I think this whole vaccine issue has become a political football in a lot of ways. And some people feel like, you know, you're taking away my rights and this is unfair. But I have to ask you, as a recipient, 16 years out, and someone who fought COVID and pneumonia, what is your view on that? About not having, About not being listed, you don't have a vaccine? Correct. People who, mm-hmm. people who need transplants but won't get vaccinated. There's approximately 110,000 plus people <clears throat> waiting to live again. Waiting to live again. Waiting to live again. I was... I was you know, we had, we took support group meetings. We had support group meetings, pre-transplant, post. And I was at, during pre-transplant, I was at a support support group meeting, finished the meeting, walked outside, waiting for Valet to bring my car. One of the guys that was in there, also waiting for lungs, comes out the meeting, goes down to the end. Here comes my pulmonologist. All right, Miss Peoples, take it easy. All right, you too. And he kind of looks to the left and he sees this man down there 
smoking. I knew you were going to say that. I knew it. From what I'm told, he went down and told the man, you're no longer on the list. Mm-hmm. Why would they? Let's go to what we do. Why would I go approach a family about giving the gift of life to their loved one who now they believe is going to save lives and give it to you and you misuse it? You mistreat it while somebody else is dying. I totally agree with it. I totally agree with it. This is you as well. You're not, you're not, in my, in my opinion, you're not even trying to honor the gift if, if that's going to be your position, because you are already putting yourself in a, in a bad spot. Yes. We've got to do what we can do. We right. can't do all this other stuff. Right. We've got to do what we can do. Right. And if you don't value life enough, then somebody else will. Believe me, there's somebody else on that list. There's <clears> there that will. Yeah, hundred plus yeah. other thousand people who will. Yeah. They absolutely will. Yeah. I, I just I think just hearing that from you um just really magnifies what it I mean just really honoring this gift of life and understanding the just the seriousness of what that means yes yes and it's along the same Mm -hmm. it's just along the same lines yeah right besides your legacy now you got two legacies right i don't even know my donor family but i'm carrying their legacy yes and I don't care enough to take care of myself. Right. I didn't deserve the gift. Right. That doesn't even, yeah, the, the two don't even. Mm-hmm. Not at all. So, Denise, how do we, how do we as African-Americans and, and African-Americans, people of color who do this work, we believe in donation. We, we've seen firsthand what it can do. Um, from both the donor family side and the recipient side, how do we change the narrative around African-Americans and donation and the skepticism? That is such a million dollar question. I think to continue what we're doing. Mm -hmm. I had a mother who was of a certain religion. Her son was of a certain religion. And I approached her and she said, because of the religion that her son practiced, she could not allow him to be a donor. Okay. Two, maybe three months later, I see her at church. She was visiting my church. We're letting out, people are, you know, leaving. I hear my name and I'm like, who is that? And I see the woman coming towards me. And I'm like, oh yeah, I remember her. And I said, hey, and I said her name. She was like, you remember me? I was like, yeah, I remember you. And she looked at me and she got choked up and started to cry. And you know what she said to me? I wish I would have done it. Now I have nothing. He didn't have any children. I wish I would have done it. We gotta, we gotta continue to spread this word and this education before families ever hit the ICU. Yeah. We really have to. We have to be examples for those of us who are recipients and don't tell the story. You again are dishonoring 
that gift. The community needs those stories. Stop being so secretive that you have kidney problems. You do not leave the house three times a week to go to the grocery store. You do not. You're going to dialysis for hours. Tell the story. Secrets kill us. Oh, my God. That's why we have so many myths and misconceptions. We do. Yes, absolutely. Yes, we really have to tell the story. We have to be examples. We have to make those connections with those most trusted people in our communities and find out, stop, what do you believe? We're having, we're putting together an event now with faith leaders of all, all faiths. Whether or not you believe in donation, organ, you know, donation or tissue, we want to hear what you think. We really want to hear it. Like, tell us what you think. No. Okay. If, say, if you're Muslim, show, you know, hey, you got to show it to me in writing. Show me where in the Quran it says, I, I need to know. Tell me. Or is this your personal opinion? And we have to get real with people. And I think and the that's, so, that's so important just to, to give people that that space and that platform to, to talk about what they believe right. for themselves, but also mm-hmm. what does your faith tell you? Because I think I think a lot of faith of faith leaders who are opposed to donation would be surprised once they dig into their word and see what it says. Exactly. And be surprised who in their congregation needs, waiting, had a transplant, had tissue. So surprised. I've had that happen. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we're going to wrap up our time. I could talk to you for hours, but. Yes, we can't. Um, but is there anything that you, that, that we haven't talked about or touched on that you'd like to, to share? Yeah, people, we always talk about generational wealth. We quickly talk about that, especially now. Big comp, big whatever the things is. Oh, you got to learn the the market. You got to do all of that. Okay, great. You are setting up, you know, wealth so that, you know, your, your, your children and your children's children can do better than you. I get it. I get it. But the most precious thing you can give them is generational health. Teach them about our first surplus as a people. Teach them about food. Take them in the kitchen. I don't care where you have an event in your house. In our community, everybody ends up in the kitchen. That's right. Because that is where people lie, laugh, talk, fight, just tell secrets. Oh my God, in the kitchen. So some of the things you said, one of them is I am an author. And I also have a cooking show called Prep to Live. We got to learn how to take care of ourselves. Find you. I, I live in the heart of Newark. I have one of the most beautiful container gardens you have ever seen. You can do it wherever you are. Start with a, start with a tomato. I guarantee you it's contagious. Know what you're putting in your body. Know what you're putting in your body. A lot of things, especially when it comes to kidneys, livers, what you put in your body matters. 
those things are those things are not idiopathic by no means. My lung disease was idiopathic. Don't know how I got it. Nobody in my family's ever had it. But not to say I didn't do anything wrong. I didn't. I did something right with my body in order to, you know, no, it just happened. But I could have been more vigilant with my body and what I did to it. So I think the la- one of the things I would tell people, just please, please start getting serious. Don't, what's, so what is Thursday? Start today. The internet is full of ways for you to get healthy one small step at a time. So if people wanted to learn more about your What's their cooking show is called? Prep, P-R-E-P, the number two, L-I-V-E. It is on YouTube. It is on Instagram. The book, The Prepper's Journal, is on, you can get that on Amazon. Okay. Yeah. Prep to Live. Check that out. Yes. Encouraging and and breathing generational health into Mm -hmm. our families. I, I love that. I love that. So as we as we conclude, I, I want to you know we talked we talked about faith and religion and and you being a preacher's kid. I wanted to just end with this truth, and that is, all major religions support donation as a final act of compassion and giving. I say that again: all major religions support organ, eye, and tissue donation as a final act of compassion and giving. Amen. <laughs> Amen. Yes. Amen. Whatever, however you want to say. Yes. So today there are 106,495 people waiting for life-saving organ transplants. And more than a thousand of those need lung transplants. And we spoke to Denise, who is 16 years post-transplant, and congratulations. And just thank you for everything that you're doing in your community and just sharing your truth. Thank you for, for doing that. Thanks so much um, for having me. Absolutely. Because you. you're 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 empowering others, you're educating people, and you know, you're you're kind of demystifying what this is. And so and we need that. We need those stories, we need those connections. So this is really important. So to my listeners, your decision to be a donor, you taking the step to register your decision to be a donor can be life for a person who is dying. These are men, women, children, and our neighbors, people who live and work in our communities. And these are also complete strangers who just need help. Please visit lifepassiton.org to get informed, empowered, and to learn the truths about donation. I want to thank you so much for listening. Denise, I want to thank you again for your testimony. And everyone, please be kind to yourself and to others. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Life Center. Are you interested in saving someone's life by becoming a living donor? You have the potential to help save and enhance the lives of others, those who suffer from chronic illness or the effects of traumatic events. Statistics have shown that a new name is added to the national waiting list every 10 minutes. You have the opportunity to help others and save lives. You have the power to donate life. By offering a kidney or a portion of the liver, living donors offer their loved one or friend an alternative to waiting on the National Transplant Waiting List for an organ from a deceased donor. 
Today, the number of living donors is more than 7,300 per year, and one in four of these donors is not biologically related to the recipient. Go to Life Pass It On for more information. Thanks to Life Center for their continued support. Thank you for listening to This Thing Called Life. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your favorite podcast to make sure you get updates on all new episodes. And we would truly appreciate it if you would share, like, or give us a review to help us grow.